I was shocked three times this week. Like electrically, I was shocked three times this week. Yeah, thanks for your concern. Uh, <clears throat> on Wednesday, we put in a new washing machine in our basement. In the midst of sermon prep, I went down and installed a new washing machine. And then on Friday, our dryer died. I kid you not. Almost like they planned it that way. And so I was troubleshooting it when I got home on Friday and it zapped me, but I didn't fully realize it. And then the second time I got shocked, I was like, that, I'm getting shocked. But because I'm a slow learner, it happened again. We have a new dryer coming this week. It was an interesting couple of days. But, you know, I was kind of thinking about that and, you know, the, the nature of, you know, really being shocked three times to kind of get it. And I think that's an apt metaphor for this morning, our last Sunday in Deuteronomy. We finished Deuteronomy in earnest today, and we finished the, the book last week. But this morning, we're going to look at Deuteronomy in the New Testament. And we'll be looking at verses in Deuteronomy and New Testament scriptures that we've looked at in some cases, a bunch of times. So it's going to kind of feel like, wait, we've already been through this. We've talked about this. But we're really asking the Lord to apply it to our lives, to answer that question, so what? Like, what's the point of studying something from the 15th century BC from a particular ethnic group of people today? And so we're going to make this case that Deuteronomy is heavily influential on the New Testament, specifically through the lives and ministries of Jesus, Paul, and Peter. Now, we know from Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul has told us uh, as we've gone through our study of Deuteronomy that everything that happened to Israel and everything that was written down in the Old Testament served as an example to us and was designed to teach and instruct us. But even more than that, the prophets quoted the book of Deuteronomy over a thousand times. Deuteronomy itself is quoted in the New Testament roughly 200 times. And then the book of Isaiah alone, which is the most quoted Old Testament book in the, in the New, is quoted 400, over 400 times. And so if you consider the influence of Deuteronomy on the prophets, and Isaiah in particular, and the direct quotes of Deuteronomy, it hugely undergirds the New Testament. And so here's our big point. If Deuteronomy is foundational in the New Testament to Jesus' life and ministry, Paul's theology, and we'll look at as Peter's charge, then it applies to my life. It's foundational to my life as well. And so that's kind of our charge this morning. That's where we're headed. Uh, why don't you join me in a word of prayer? Our God and Father, this morning we approach your word with a sense of awed reverence as we come to the end of our study of Deuteronomy, but look a little bit more uh, specifically at these words and themes in the New Testament through the lens of your son, the Lord Jesus, of Paul the Apostle, and of Peter. God, would you be the one who is our teacher and our instructor this morning by your Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to begin with Jesus this morning in the New Testament in Matthew's gospel in chapter 4. We're going to see that Deuteronomy serves for Jesus as a ready defense against sinful temptation. Now, to set the context here, Jesus has just been baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and God the Father has affirmed him as the Son of God. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, God says of Jesus as he is baptized. And then we step into verse 1 of chapter 4. It says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, we need to stop right there and, and make one point. We don't have time this morning to explore the Scripture to make the point, but the Bible teaches that God does not tempt us to evil. But however, he does lead us into seasons of both trial and testing. 
to cause us to, consider, to test our faith and also our dependence on him. And that may at times include temptation by the evil one. You can see this more vividly in the book of Job if you're new to the Bible. Job chapter 1 is, is a great case study of that. Verse 2. After he had fasted, this is Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That might be the most obvious statement in all of the Bible. <laughs> but beyond that, the number 40 here is significant. In Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, God, uh, Israel rather, is collectively referred to as God's son and, and goes into the wilderness for 40 years in a season of trial and testing and refining. Here, Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and enters a similar season. The parallel is not on accident. Let's move to verse three. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And he, writ he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And spoiler, Jesus here quotes Deuteronomy chapter eight. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. Note here, Satan actually quotes scripture in, in uh, tempting Jesus. He, that is God, will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Jesus here quotes Deuteronomy chapter six. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, quoting Deuteronomy chapter six. And the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Jesus' response to Satan in the temptations in the desert all come from the book of Deuteronomy. He recalls them from memory as he faces this temptation. And so before we look at a little bit more at the application and the lessons for us and how Jesus responds, I want to look at Satan's tactics in tempting Jesus specifically. And one of the things that we see in the word of God, as we go, if we go back to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, we look at Jesus' temptations here in Matthew chapter 4. And if we had time, if we looked at 1 John chapter 2, here's the encouragement, church. Satan's tactics, his approach to tempting you to sin have not changed. It's the same from the time of creation through the time of Christ through and into the New Testament era. And so we're going to look at that in detail this morning. I want to make one note here first. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 are in an absolute paradise, a palatial place of perfection. It's uncorrupted by sin. And in addition, their bellies are full, as it were. They're in a place of perfect blessing and protection. Whereas Jesus is in the parched environment of the desert in a world that's been corrupted by sin and he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And we believe that Genesis chapter three is historic. It's the account that Adam and Eve were not, it's not fable or mythology, but it really took place. And so that context is really important for us. So how does the evil one, Satan, the adversary, would be the, the exact definition, approach temptation. Well, the first thing that, that the evil one does is he uses, he deceives. He uses deception to sow doubt 
into our minds. He challenges or invalidates, rather, our dependence on God and his will, what God has said. And we see this uh, in how Satan does this in the garden when he asks a simple question of Eve. Did God really say you're not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? See, the seed of doubt is sown. In, in the desert with Jesus, he asks this question. If you are the son of God, or he insinuates a question, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, Satan certainly knows that Jesus is the son of God, but he just adds this question mark to the equation. And think about it in your own life, honestly. In whatever area that you struggle with temptation or different parts of your life where you're prone to being drawn away by desires within you, isn't it the same? It certainly is for me that there's this inner voice, right, that, that's, that says something along the same, same lines. Does the Bible really say that we're not supposed to do that? Or what about a sin of omission? Like, am I really, am I really do I really need to do that? Is that a mandate in the scripture? Right? It seems innocent enough, and there's always some partial truth involved, but it begins to cause me to question the authority of God, the word of God, the will of God in my life. We see it both with Adam and Eve and with Jesus. Second thing Satan does is he denies. In other words, he challenges the essence or the actual content of our dependence on God and his will, what God has, says, has said. He challenges it directly. In the garden, it's overt. He says, no, you will certainly not die responding to what God has said to Adam and Eve, that the consequence, if they disobey him and, and partake of the fruit, that death will enter the equation of their world. Satan says, no, it won't. If Jesus in the desert, it's a little different. He actually quotes from the Psalms, and he says, if you throw yourself down, the Bible says God will protect you. He'll command angels concerning you, contradicting gravity and what Jesus knew to be true. The same is true for us, isn't it? When we move from that place of just sort of questioning God's authority or some particular scripture, then we would then move to this place where we kind of question the effects of it, right? Like, will it really harm anybody? Does one look or one exposure or one whatever really matter? Is this really that big of a deal? And we call that into question. We challenge the essence of it. Third thing that Satan does is he defies God. And he does this in two ways. First, Satan stands in the place of God. He acts to speak for him and he appeals to the sinner, to me and to you, for our desire to be godlike, which is true of every one of us. I have this insatiable desire to be in control, to be autonomous, to do things my way. And Satan appeals to that. He stands in the place of God and he appeals to that. Listen to how he does it to Adam and Eve. He says, in fact, God knows. Let me tell you what God knows. That when you eat of it, you will become like God. You will become like him. He stands in the place of God. He appeals to their desire to be like God. In the desert, he says to Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms and their splendor if you just worship me. Satan sows doubt through deceit. He denies what God has said is true and then he ultimately defies him and appeals to our desire to do the same. Well, how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds, again, Deuteronomy serves as a foundation and a ready defense for Jesus. He responds with three relatively obscure passages from, or scriptures from Isaiah. Man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Serve the Lord and worship him only. And in quoting these three scriptures, Jesus elevates two things, the word of God and the glory of God. Jesus says these are paramount, these are more important as he responds to Satan. Now note that Jesus doesn't deny that he's hungry and he doesn't deny that he could change the bread or the stones into bread rather. He doesn't deny that he's the son of God and and on mission and thereby under the protection of, of God the heavenly father. And he doesn't deny that all the kingdoms of the world will one day bow the knee and confess him as Lord. What he rejects is the means by which he will employ or or attain all of those things. You see, Jesus is determined to walk the path of obedience and it's a path of sacrifice and suffering. What Satan is offering is, is that Jesus circumvent that. That's a lot of our temptation too, isn't it? It's to have the good things of this life, the blessings of God that are literally corrupted, perverted, or twisted, to have it without sacrifice, without suffering. And the path, particularly for the Christian, often involves sacrifice and many times suffering. The promise of the Christian life is not a life free of suffering, but of a God who is with us in our suffering, which, by the way, is part of the reason why Jesus goes into the desert and faces all this temptation in the first place. You see, Jesus responds with the same tools available to us and he responds and faces Satan here in the desert as a man, as a human being, not as God. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that Jesus responds to Satan. He doesn't employ his divine power or his divine nature. He responds as a human being. He responds with the same tools available to you and me if you're a believer in Jesus, the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where he leans, Rightly so, when we come to church, we often spend a lot of time looking at scripture and preaching on the deity of Christ. That Christ is God in human flesh. He's the word made flesh to dwell among us. He is God incarnate. But this is a passage because the scripture also equally teaches that Jesus is 100% human, that he can empathize and sympathize with everything that you struggle with, with every trial and travail that you walk through. And this passage highlights that and focuses on the humanity of Jesus. It's important that we honor both as we look at the very nature of Christ. So Jesus responds to Satan in his humanity with the word of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that invites a series of questions, doesn't it? The first question that comes to mind is, okay, well then could Jesus have sinned? Could he have capitulated here? As we look at the full counsel of particularly the New Testament, but really the the whole Bible, when it teaches us about Jesus' nature, we would say that no, Christ was not able to sin in so much as he was 100% human. And so then, those, the skeptics among us, for sure, but even if we're just being uh, thorough in our study of the scriptures, the next question that would follow is, well, wait a minute, doesn't that then sort of invalidate or delegitimize Christ's temptation in the desert? Doesn't that mean that it doesn't have the same potency as the temptation that I face if he could not have sinned, even with a human nature? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, I think it makes the case that because Jesus was both divine and human, that he walks in the place where we couldn't walk with obedience and provides us an example. And so let's talk about his nature with using two illustrations uh, this morning. Uh, The first, one scholar says it this way. He says, suppose that Jesus' divine nature is a steel rod that cannot be bent. And his human nature is a thin wire 
But imagine that the thin wire is welded to the steel rod. They are fused together. And so while Jesus can feel the pressure and the stress and, and all that comes along with sinful temptation, that because those natures are fused, he cannot sin. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union of Christ and his twin natures. There's your theological vocabulary word for the day. Uh, Zach was uh, sharing some things with me between services. He said he heard in seminary the illustration of a swimmer swinging the, swimming the English Channel representing Christ's human nature, but with a boat following behind him, that Christ swam the whole channel, but his divine nature was with him the whole time. I really love this illustration by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. You start to get a picture for, for what Jesus did in facing the full weight of temptation on our behalf. He goes on, he says, in this profound sentence, he says, this is why bad people in one sense actually know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Now think about that for a minute. That's, we need to park there. That is a profound statement. How would you describe someone who lived a sheltered life? Probably someone who is pious, right, and, and isolated from the temptations of the world. Lewis says, no, no, no. A sheltered life, a person who shelters life is, is a person who's practiced, to use his word, badness their whole life. Who just when temptation comes, they very shortly give in. And they actually know very little about the power of evil and temptation. And so Jesus in his human nature even with the inability to sin due to his divine nature, he goes on, he says, because Christ was the only man who never yielded to temptation, it is the only, he is the, also the only man who knows the full weight of what temptation means. This is what our Savior did for us in this one instance in the New Testament. So what's our application this morning? As Christ has modeled for us, apply the word of God when faced with sinful temptation. Apply the word of God when facing temptation. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is living and active. It is a living word. It is able to judge the thoughts, the attitudes, the inclinations, the intentions of my heart. The word of God is a mirror that reveals to me the recesses of my very heart. But praise God, it's also a map. It's a map that shows me the path and what it means to walk with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I want to practice this a little practically this morning because the question comes to mind, if we say apply the word to God's sinful temptation, well, where's the Holy Spirit in that? We say that Jesus relied on the word and the spirit. I want to suggest that we do that through memorization. That whatever your particular category of sin struggle is, and we all have one, that you find scriptures, six, eight, ten scriptures, even just a couple, memorize them, hide them in your heart. And in that moment of temptation, you cry out to the Holy Spirit and he will bring from your heart to your mind the very scriptures that you've locked away there as a resource and a tool. It's what Jesus did in the desert. He recalls from memory scripture from Deuteronomy. So let's look at two categories. You can apply this to any area of sin. Sexual sin. If sexual sin is your area of struggle, here's just two verses you could memorize. One easy, one a little more challenging. Job 31.1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl or boy, as it were. 
I made a covenant with my eyes. Hide that word in your heart. Or what about Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4? For this is God's will, your sanctification, which simply means you're becoming holy, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now you might say, well, wait, that, that, those two verses are really wordy and kind of long. I don't know if I can memorize that. Yes, you can. There's all kinds of things that you've memorized without even thinking about it that are important to you. This is just two scriptures. And as you face that temptation, if you've locked these scriptures away, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind, remember, you've made a covenant with your eyes. Remember that Paul calls you to stand in holiness and honor, not be like the world, be different. You can apply this to any category. Let's look at one more. What about gossip or patterns of speech, unholy speech and sinful speech? Paul says a great scripture to memorize in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Percolate on these things. Marinate in these things. Which, by the way, means we need to be guarded about what else we're putting into our minds. What are we reading? What are we watching? And so forth. Lock this scripture away. Or how about Ephesians 4.29? No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Apply the word of God to areas of sinful temptation. Deuteronomy serves as a foundation for Christ in his life, a ready defense. Well, let's move to Paul the Apostle. Deuteronomy for Paul serves as a foundation for his theology, and particularly it's a theology of grace. We've talked about this in Deuteronomy. We'll look primarily at God's grace in his choice of Israel, ancient Israel in the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 7 tells us, the Lord had his heart set on you, speaking of Israel, and chose you not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand. He redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Jump ahead a couple chapters. It says, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stiff-necked, read, sinful people. God's choosing of ancient Israel was a choosing of mercy and grace. It wasn't because they were uh, so significant. It wasn't because they were uh, so morally excellent. No, it was because he loved them and he's a promise-keeping God. And he'd honored what he promised to the patriarchs. Now, while Paul doesn't quote these scriptures directly, Clearly, these themes are on his mind as he writes parts of the New Testament and begins to describe our call as believers in Jesus as a call of God's grace, using very similar language uh, from Deuteronomy 7 and 9 in his letter to the Corinthians in particular. Paul, you remember in his own personal journey, if you're familiar with his story, was a rabbi. And in his early training as a rabbi, he would have memorized the entire first five books of the Bible, including Deuteronomy. And so these themes are familiar to him as he begins to see what God is doing in the gospel. He writes in 1 Corinthians 1, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. If we jump down to the end of the chapter, listen to those Deuteronomy themes. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. 
Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. And he ends this passage saying, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This theology of unmerited grace, of undeserved favor, of unearned love runs from Deuteronomy into the prophets, into the gospels, into Paul's theology as he teaches and exhorts the church. He makes it clear that God has chosen you and me because of his grace and mercy. Another way to say it is God didn't choose you because you were so awesome, but because he is awesome. Well, so what's our application on Paul's theology standing on a foundation of Deuteronomy? It's this, we stand on the grace of God amidst our insecurities. You could substitute the word pride there as well. We stand on the grace of God. In our pride, when we are tempted to trust in our own flesh, to take credit for our own skills or abilities or even accomplishments, we stand on the grace of God. We're reminded that God did not choose me, God did not call me because I am so great, but because he is great. On the other hand, when I struggle with insecurity or feelings of inadequacy or guilt and shame from past mistakes or failures, I stand on the grace of God, that he chose me because he loves me and he's a promise-keeping God. I felt this, I want to share a little bit of background over the last, how this really impacted me in the last few years, what it meant to stand on God's grace. I, I felt this profoundly in my, la- in my life in the last four or five years, uh, particularly stepping into this role as the lead pastor, and, and specifically as it pertains to the building we're sitting in this morning. We were at a season where uh, the church building next door, which is now the youth room, if you're new here to GBC, was our main sanctuary. We were running three services that were overflowing. People were driving the parking lots and driving away because there was nowhere to sit or park. And it was in that season, I had grown up here. I'd been in youth ministry as a volunteer. I'd served as the youth pastor for 10 years in a very short season as the associate pastor. And in January 2017, I stepped into this role, not knowing what was immediately coming in that new year. I just wasn't privy to it, really. But I think early in the winter of 2017, I became quickly aware of three major areas of responsibility that that at least partially landed on me that I'd previously not known. And I found myself in a place of of a deep sense of inadequacy. These were the three areas. The first... As we looked at at moving toward this building project, I recognized there was a responsibility and a need to teach a biblical theology of stewardship and finances and givings, giving and projects that that we needed to do some work teaching in this area. And that was a major responsibility that was before me. The second thing was that, that there was leadership that was needed to cast clear vision for why we were doing this, to draw draw God's people at Groton Bible Chapel together and to give a clear clarion call for us to, to bond together and to do this as one family. The third thing that was really evident was the need for the management of all of it actually taking place, of executing it. The capital campaign itself, the uh, building of all the logistics and so forth to get to the time of building and then the management of the building project itself. 
In those early days of 2017, I was probably one of a very few people who understood the gravity of that responsibility. And, and for my part in it, I felt woefully underskilled, inadequate, and insecure. And God impressed on my heart this idea of standing in the grace of God in three really profound ways. The first was deeply personal. Psalm 62 became, Psalm 62 verse 8 became my verse for that year. It simply says, pour out your heart to me. The conviction was, pour out your heart with all the insecure, whatever you're feeling to me, before you talk to the elders or lean on them or other mentors or even my wife, pour out your heart to me. By the way, I've come, to, I've come back to that scripture time and again. But in that season, I needed that and I heeded that, standing on the grace of God. Secondly, was the conviction that it's not all about you. And, and not in the way we would normally say that uh, in a sermon. But I mean, it was not all about me in terms of the responsibility and the load and even those three categories. That God made it clear that he was going to raise up his people to the tune of hundreds and some of those people would actually uh, bear more responsibility than I did. And that ended up being very true. Many of you were involved in all of that. Very shortly after my sort of being overwhelmed with all this, it all began to happen and God be began to raise up his people. I think of one woman who spent night after night after night doing overnight security in a little RV over here in the parking lot during the building project. Or those that gave hours to tedious uh, logistical administrative tasks a year before we even started to build. God reminded me that this is a plural thing. The third thing was this. God reminded me, and it was sort of the phrase that pays in Esther uh, that we were looking at at the time, that it is for such a time as this. That it would be sinful and disobedient for me to play the part of Moses at the burning bush and say, God, you've got the wrong man. I'm of ill speech or whatever the excuse is. But that God made it clear that that place of, of being insecure and feeling inadequate was exactly where he wanted me to be. And my job was to be obedient. What is it that you're facing in this season of your life? It could, maybe that's a direct parallel to a work project that you're facing. Maybe it's a series of strained relationships in your family that God is calling you to be the one to bring reconciliation. Maybe it's the correcting of some bad theology in your circles. Maybe it's something related to a, a, an area of sin or past failure that you feel the weight of. Stand in the grace of God whether you're dealing with sinful pride and arrogance or the weakness of inadequacy, stand in the grace of God. There's much more we could say there. Let's move to Peter. If Deuteronomy serves as a foundation for Jesus' life and ministry and for Paul's theology, we could say it serves as a foundation for Peter's charter to a chosen people and the charge that he gives. First uh, Peter chapters one and two are kind of like a charter document to the church. Peter's letter is a corporate letter. It's to us as a collective people. And Peter quotes right out of Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 7, the same passage we were in earlier, but a little earlier in the chapter. You're a holy people, a people belonging to the Lord your God, speaking of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Peter brings that right into his first letter, not talking about Israel, but talking about you and me and the collective body of Christ. He says, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, church, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And so, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter gives us this three-part image that we, the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And then he gives us three exhortations for how we ought to then act and live. It's really our application of this passage, that we are to live as the people of God in view of the world. The first thing he says is to proclaim the mighty acts of the gospel, of your coming from darkness to light. Share the story. Use your story, we might call it your testimony, to share the gospel. Recognize in so doing your story, your testimony is not the gospel, but it is the vehicle by which you can tell of God's mighty acts. By the way, by getting really practical here, this is what we're dealing with this coming Friday. The missions team has put together a night where we're gonna do some equipping on what it looks like to proclaim the mighty acts of God and bringing you and me from darkness to light that others might know the freedom of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Encourage you to be here. Doors open at 5.30. uh, Peter's second exhortation is to abstain from sinful desires. Abstain Abstain from the idea is kind of besetting sins, things that wage war against your soul. And you say, well, how do we do that? We can actually circle back to what we learned in the beginning this morning. We respond with the word of God to sinful temptation. But maybe there's something in your life that's, that's a, an ongoing sin struggle. Maybe there's a, a hurt that you have been deeply wounded you've never dealt with. Maybe there's a habit, even an addiction in your life that you cannot break. Or maybe there's something that hangs you up and moves you to a place of your debility and struggle. Many of you know that I'm using the language of celebrate recovery. I would invite you to come Monday nights at 6.30. Celebrate recovery is the church within the church. And all of us have hurts, habits, and hangups. So I encourage you to investigate CR. Finally, Peter's third exhortation is conduct yourselves with such honor. Live in front of the world that even if they were to accuse you of something, there'd be no charge to be levied. I think of Daniel the prophet in the, in the book of Daniel who lived such an exemplary life that when his enemies and accusers came to, to uh, accuse him and to find something to accuse him of wrongdoing, they couldn't come up with anything. That's what Peter is saying to us. Conduct yourselves in such a way. And it's been a while since we've talked about it. I wonder if many of you or all of us, if we know the mission statement of this church. Our mission statement is reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ to a needy world. Conduct yourselves in view of the world in such a way that draws people into relationship with God because that's what it's all about. In Jesus' life and ministry and Paul's theology and in Peter's charge to us really all comes together in the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter one that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood 
through his blood shed on the cross on our behalf, Jesus not only lived perfectly obediently for you, but he went, Philippians says, all the way to the death of the cross, bearing the punishment of God the Father in your behalf as his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and Paul says in Ephesians 1, according to the riches of God's grace, as we talked about earlier. So this morning, we want to conclude with a time of remembering exactly the cost of our salvation. As we've looked at Deuteronomy that undergirds the New Testament, it ultimately all points us to Jesus and his cross.